Hello and welcome. I'm Jordan Rich, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster and colleague and friend of court reporter extraordinaire Diane Godfrey. Diane, we're going to begin today's episode uh, with something you'd like to read, something you discovered that you wanted to share with us. Yes, I have a Tupperware box under my bed, doesn't everybody? But anyway, <laughs> yes. I know I tell all my secrets. But anyway, it's all kind of, for, for decades, when I've sat in courtrooms, I just jot down thoughts and things that are happening. And I don't know where this came from, but when I read it the other day, I'm like, whoa. So I apologize to whoever wrote it. I don't know if it came out of a book. It looks like two Xerox pages. Mm -hmm. But it hit home with me because it's my sentiment of how I feel about my job. Bear with me because this is going to be a fun, fun episode. It is. But but please feel free. Take take it away. Okay. Our judicial system is the keystone of democracy. And court reporters play an important role in that system. An erudite justice can become a blathering idiot at the hands of an incompetent court reporter. A brilliant attorney may be portrayed a fool. We are the record. And although it is the witness who is sworn to tell the truth, the court reporter can change the the facts and the outcome of justice in the stroke of a key. When the eyewitness in a murder trial is asked... How much gin did you have to drink before you witnessed the homicide? And the court reporter records two-fifths, while the witness states two-sips. Think about it. How many jobs require 100% accuracy every minute of the working day? Then think about how you would feel if you were suddenly thrust into a complicated situation in which everyone but you knew what was happening, who the players were, and what the plausible outcome might be. May I just add, that's exactly how I feel. You don't know the names of everybody. They come up quick. My name is blah, blah, and I represent blah, blah. It's just like, what? It's like reading the book from the middle. Imagine yourself sitting three feet away from a person who raped a nine-year-old child, stabbed her 17 times, and brutally mutilated her body. Pick up the bloody clothing and tag it with an exhibit number. Hold the murder weapon in your hand. Record the tearful testimony of the victim's family without hesitation, error, or emotional display. This is the part that I love. This is me. This is why I had to read it. Think about what it's like to never lose your concentration, to never let your mind wander, no matter what is happening in your personal life. Imagine never being able to get up from your workstation on your own whim to clear your mind, stretch your legs, or to attend to necessary bodily functions. Hmm. Amen. Well read, well said, and I know, folks, that this woman means every bit of that, and she lives it, and you've been living it for over 30 years, so well done. Um, It it does uh, open up the door for uh, a chance to check out the lighter side, because it is so serious, as that uh, wonderful essay you just quoted from says, but there are moments in anybody's job that are lighter and more fun. So we thought we'd take a little diversion from the bad stuff, the really scary stuff, and do that. And I've got different categories I want you to comment on. We'll just go through each category and pick an example or two. Let's start with the, the bat wing person, the guy or gal with the robes, the judge. Okay. First of all, one time I had a coworker and he said, Diane, get downstairs quick. I want to show you something. So I go running down. And he says, come in here. And there's like a room that kind of is a – had a Xerox machine in it. It wasn't even assigned to anybody. It was just like this room. Sometimes people ate lunch in it. And there were two racks, clothing racks. 
and they had a bunch of robes on them. And we shut the door, <laughs> and we went to town. And there was a sign, only choose one. Here comes the judge. You remember that? Yeah. Wow. Good for you. Good and we for were you. putting on, we were laughing and we were putting on the robes. If we ever got caught, I don't know, they'd probably just chalk it up to two Well, fools. you could always say you were prepping for Halloween one year. I guess. Yes. But it was funny. We had a blast. You're you're working in the system for so many years. You've, you've come across so many people, including many, many judges. You mentioned one, uh, and can we talk about him? Absolutely. Ralph Gantz. He was the Supreme Judicial Court. Head honcho, right, right. chief cook and bottle washer. Very lo- well known in, in the press. I mean, he was very well respected, but tell me about him. I loved him. I loved him. I knew him when he was on the Superior Court bench, and I worked with him off and on a, a lot. There was one court reporter, Carol, that worked with him a lot more than me, but I worked with him a, a good chunk of the time, and he was so brilliant, but as down to earth. You know what he used to do? He was always quoting from, like, Anna Karenina, you know, Tolstoy. <laughs> and I'd always be like, what? And I'd have to like go and like get the quote. But he always used to, these were, I always remember him saying, there's no there there, like in legal argument, mm-hmm. you know, and he'd look and, uh, you know, he'd be discussing a case and he'd say, there's no there there. And he always used to give me this advice. He'd always say, Perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm. Like, I'd be doing something. He's like, let it go. It's good enough. Love that. Love that kind of sage advice from somebody who's very good at his job. But, you know, he, you know how they say, like, people will, like, live rock and roll. They'll eat, sleep. And he lived and slept in, like, unbelievable, the law. He loved the law. And people would tell me they'd see him at night at, like, his son's basketball game or whatever. And on both knees, they'd be, like, legal papers. And be mm. look, one eye would be looking at the court and one eye. I mean, he was just—he had this perfect balance of professionalism. He never crossed the line. He was so professional. I was in awe of him. There was a reason he became the head of the SJC, the Supreme Judicial Court. Very well-respected man. And he had a sense of humor, too, which you have to kind of have at times. He used to call me the irrepressible Diane Godfrey. (laughs) Because, you know, the thing about him was he was professional and he ran a good courtroom, but he was just like your friend. There was nothing pompous about him. I mean, he was Harvard in Harvard Law, I believe. And he was just a brilliant mind, but he was, he didn't care. He was like, you could say anything to him and he'd, he'd get the joke. Like I'd see him after work on the sidewalk and I'd be telling him innocuous, like gossip around the building. And he'd be like, really? We would be like doubled over laughing. I'd see him in the ATM machine and we couldn't, we'd, we'd start crying. We'd laugh so hard over silly stuff. Nice memories. Nice memories. Now, Great guy. the court is, is a, personality parade of of uh, defendants and witnesses and jurors but certainly lawyers and you've we've had them on the show many of them and they're incredibly interesting people any funny stories about uh, lawyers going a little above and beyond the call of duty in the courtroom well a lot of them would get um, sometimes they would get a little emotional like one time to prove a point a lawyer like jumped up on defense table and landed on his belly and it was like flailing his arms and legs to make a point. And the judge quietly, you know, into the microphone is like, Mr. So-and-so, can you see me for a moment at sidebar? 
And then he gets to sidebar and the judge bends down. She says, you really need to stop jumping on the furniture, <laughs> counsel. <laughs> uh, that, that's a good stepping off point for just a second uh, because we've talked about this in the past, but it's worth reiterating. The courtroom is a sacred place and there are some very important boundaries. You want to just review what those boundaries are because it's not like it is on TV. Yes. Um, you, and you know the metaphoric past the bar. Mm-hmm. There really is a bar. And it looks like the corral. You know how like if you watch the Westerns as the corral and that swinging door? You have to be a member of the bar to pass that section and get into that block in front of the judge's bench. Nobody can just willy-nilly – Right. Oh, yeah. and, and when lawyers or DAs, or whatever, start to act up a little bit, the judge very often puts them in their place. Oh, you'll hear them in <laughs> Chicago. Like you can't – and we're in Boston. A lawyer cannot approach a witness nor the bench where the judge sits without asking permission. And you have to have a darn good reason. Um, I believe – I surmise it would be that you don't want to intimidate the witness by getting too close. Yeah. And you go up, you granted the permission and you say your piece or you hand a document to the witness that's necessary for the testimony and you get out of Dodge quick. Go back to the podium. Yeah, it's very it's very structured and much more disciplined. Uh, and when you see somebody flailing his arms on his belly on the table, that stands out. <laughs> We've seen a lot of funny things. Um, one time a DA was for some reason – wearing stiletto heels. Don't ask me why. And as she got up to the witness box, she fell down. And she heard the thud. And as soon as she fell, she jumped up like a jack-in-the-box. And the judge had been looking down at his papers, and he heard it, but he didn't see it. And he couldn't figure out where it came from or what happened. He was so perplexed. <laughs> and I wanted to say to him, she just fell. But wow. And she stood up and she said, that was weird. Not, this is just me, my opinion. There's nothing funnier than seeing uh, on a runway in Paris a model six-foot-tall fall. It just it, It's funnier than seeing some schlep like me fall because I'm likely to fall. All right, so so we, we know that there are those in the in the courtroom that – that have a role to play. And of course, we've talked with and about court officers. They are remarkably important people. They do an amazing job, but they're people. And you had a story about a guy who probably wouldn't get away with any of this stuff now in this day and age. Tell us. The pendulum has swung so far. None of the shenanigans, anything I'm telling you. I mean, I've been there for a long time, but this used to go on. We had one court officer. They wear, all of them are assigned a radio on their on their, not their lapel, but right shoulder. here, shoulder. Yeah. And, you know, say they were down, they could just, you know, they wouldn't have to hold it. They could mm-hmm. just speak into it. He used to go into the men's room, and when he was urinating, he would depress the radio <laughs> button. And the whole building, we all knew it was him. You could hear him urinating. Or he would take, other times he would take the radio, and he'd be joking, of course. And I'm going to use a fictitious name, Mike Smith. And who was another court officer, and he'd say, Mike Smith to ladies' underwear, Mike Smith, <laughs> please report to the 12th floor, you know, like ladies' underwear. A frustrated lingerie. comedian, huh? Oh, yeah. He was the one with the whoopee cushion in the courtroom, too. Oh, no, no, no. And the irony kidding. is it was one of the strictest judges in, I don't know. Where, wait a minute. Where did he place the whoopee cushion? Under the judge's seat? 
He had put it in another employee seat. Okay, because that would really take Colonies, if you know what I mean. Well, years um, later, after that happened, I ran into a court reporter who got married. She got out of the profession, and we were reminiscing. And she had always been working with that court officer. And remember when he'd have the whoopee cushion? She said, a couple of years, even after I finished the job, I'd get orders for transcripts, and I'd be test- doing the testimony, and in the background, you'd hear the whoopee cushion. Oh, uh, here's the question that I have to ask. Do you have to insert into your reporting the sound of the whoopee cushion or the fact that it went off? No, no. <laughs> Are you kidding? And suddenly in the courtroom, well, whatever. It sounded like the deluxe one too, not that one for dollar ninety nine in the funny store in the in the joke store. Well, you happen this was to be the deluxe. You then spoken like a true uh, expert. Uh, very well done. Very I well didn't done. really realize there were iterations in. A hierarchy of whoopee uh, the, cushions. The late, great Leslie Nielsen uh, was the world's predominant expert or preeminent expert on whoopee cushions. He's dead now, so we can't ask him, but then anyway. Okay, so that, <laughs> that's... Now, it, there was another example. I don't know if it's the same guy who took the little pictures. This is before the internet Different stuff. county, different, whole different court. This guy, I love him. He's the type of guy... You'd want him at your party. He's actually a really good guy, but he'd be a horrible husband and boyfriend, if you know what I mean. He was just this, – there's a story there, but anyway. Yeah. Um, he used to take photos of – somehow would get a hold of photos of employees, and he would ha- actually be able to shrink them down, like to the size of a thumbprint. And he'd have like a sticky – like I, I remember one time I got into a, a photo booth at a, at a um, cinema – and I took my picture with a Martian, and it was – you got like a thing would come out of the machine, and you could stick the photo yeah, anywhere you wanted. Well, those. anyway, he did it with employees' photos. He would go around the courthouse and arbitrarily just kind of stick employees, different employees' photos in crazy places. So you'd be taking testimony. It would be like a hot Friday afternoon around 3 o'clock, and you'd kind of glance up on the wall – and there on, like, the big t- the clock, you'd see, like, your photo. I mean, he'd, <laughs> he'd do it all the time. It was just hilarious. It's, it's stuff that's really innocent. It, again, it's much more strict today than, than in the past. But uh, I, I have to ask you then about jurors because, man, these are – this is us, me. I'm a juror. I'm an ordinary Joe or Jane. But people are really funny and extraordinary. What do you have on jurors? Well – I think most jurors want to do their service and they're forthright. I mean, they're, they're you know, well-intentioned and they're great. Sometimes they're a little eccentric. And one time we were in maybe on like day eight of a trial and we had an extraordinarily unexplained long morning recess. And then that day, the, our, our lunch turned into like an hour and 40 minutes. And I'm like, what the heck? Come to find out this juror had been going home on breaks and lunch. And when he arrived that particular day after the elongated um, lunch hour, Mm -hmm. the judge inquired privately of him at the sidebar. Naturally, I'm taking it down. And he's drenched from head to toe. It's in September, still warm out, still warm weather in Boston, drenched. And he said, well, I go home on my break and lunch and I jog back. 
And then the judge said, okay. And then she said, it has come to my attention that you're falling asleep, and I see that the jurors on either side have to kind of nudge you. He said, well, it's so boring. When I wake back up, you're at the same question and answer anyway. I didn't. <laughs> He's serious. He wasn't being flipped. No, I believe you. He, I believe he you. said, I get it anyway. You guys go over it too much. I'm not missing a thing by falling asleep. Now, Diane, you're also involved as a court reporter when juries are selected, correct? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, the old joke that comedians used to say, how do you not serve on a jury trial? You, you walk in and you say, I believe everybody's guilty. Get me out of here. But seriously, what, what happens on occasion that makes you raise your eyebrows? Well, we hear that, but not often. And I noticed that the far outlying small communities way far from Boston, far away from Boston, I think by and large more people will make a blanket statement like they don't like this particular mm. ethnicity. Mm. You don't really see that in Boston. Boston is, I think, very liberal and and have have you heard odd excuses though for yes people? oh absolutely absolutely um there was a kid this is before marijuana was legal in the in boston in massachusetts he came up now of all the shirts this is just me jordan if you opened up your wardrobe and you were going to court would you pick the lime green T-shirt that said drug dealer across the front of it. Unlikely that I'd have that in the first place or that I would decide to wear that. If I were wearing it, I'd wear it underneath my white shirt and blue tie. Well, he comes, <laughs> he's young, he's college age, yeah. and he gets, his name is called, you know, his number is called, and he comes up to speak to the judge as a potential juror. And the judge, first of all, he wasn't respectful at all to the judge. And... It was kind of borderline. So the judge sensed it and he said, and why are you wearing, like, you came to jury duty. What's up with that? And he said some half-assed thing. And the judge said, what are you doing this summer? And he said, now get this. He said, I'm interning at a particular law firm in town. The judge was like that with one of the partners, mm -hmm. like real close friends. Mm -hmm. And he said, I know one of the partners, Mr. So-and-so, and I'm going to call him and tell him, A, how you presented to me, and B, that you didn't have the sense not to wear that disrespectful shirt in my courtroom. Mm. And he let him go. But later on, this is the part I love. This mm. particular judge, the judge was right in my opinion. I was in his lobby at the end of the day for I don't know what reason we were in there. And this judge, he's in this beautiful, like, Egyptian cotton, you know, shirt with, like, the monogram as initials. He's going, what do you think of that wise little bastard today? <laughs> <laughs> See, I loved when this judge would get hot under the collar. That's he great. swore like a trooper. And I'd, I'd be like, they're yes. Real, because they're real people. And he'd say, that little shit. He said, I have a good mind to call. He didn't end up calling over there, but... It was I, funny. I, I don't think it would be uh, a bad idea to bring it back to reality for just a second because we've we've taken this opportunity to share a few funny stories. This is still a very serious place. And to, Absolutely. And I know you wanted to share this story before we wrap up, and that is how serious it can be in the building itself when you go to get a cup of coffee and you notice something. Now, I'm going to preface my comments that these – Three things that happened happened over a course of 25 years, and they're anomalies, and they don't happen. But it was just a freak thing. One time I heard commotion under my—when I was on the third floor, I heard a commotion under my window, and I 
kind of jumped up. You can jump up on the windowsill. You could park mm-hmm. a bus on it. It's so big. And I could something was seriously going down. And I ran out of my room and went downstairs. There had been a stabbing outside the courtroom, uh, the courthouse under my window. So two guys got into it. They were there for something criminal, and they got into it. Another time, there was a stabbing at the entrance of the courthouse. And a third time, right before COVID, I went to the second floor to get like a snack at the stand. And there was some blood on the floor, and there had just been a stabbing. That's a one in a million because that place is run tighter than a drum. I mean, how they got beyond the metal detector Mm. is a a, a mystery that just doesn't happen, and it happened. But it's a stark reminder that even a, a, so rare that it is, Diane, this is some serious stuff with some seriously dangerous, potentially dangerous people on hand. Yes. And even like at the airport, someone will s- slither something by, <clears throat> mm-hmm. TSA. But these court officers and the and the way the system is, it's pretty good. It will detect things. That was a one in a million. That won't happen in the court. One of the things I take away, uh, having known you now for some time, and we do these shows and we also go out and do live talks to libraries and groups, is that, well, first of all, this is you. You're a social person. You're a social butterfly. butterfly. But there really is a family atmosphere. You work with these people every day for years on end, and it's a team. It's a team effort. Like any good organization, you've got to have that camaraderie. We do, but I'll tell you one thing. It's a flaw, and a lot of other court personnel have said it. One department doesn't know what the other is doing, and it, it collides, mm. and it's, it's, it, it doesn't work as a – I mean, some of the stuff, you don't even find out. Like, remember I told you about the duress button? Oh, yes, the duress button. Who knew? Like, sometimes I'd be upstairs doing a Xerox, and I'd look, and there'd be a big thing. So-and-so retired. You never even heard about it. Mm. I mean, the communication wasn't so good. And yet, when you're in that courtroom, things are functioning the way they're supposed to function 90% of the time, I'm guessing, right? Oh, yeah. But, you know, that guy that would come back from jury duty every day, that he was lived in the South End and he'd jog Mm -hmm. back— The judge said something to him, like, why are you – he said, I'm going to be honest with you, Your Honor. I'm on the ripple. I'm on the ripple. And that is like some sort of rot gut alcohol he was drinking. He goes, you got me there, Your Honor. I'm on the ripple. Man, you see and hear some bizarre stuff. So they had to bounce him. He was let go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why they pick alternates. Good point. And I know one time, another time, there was a – leave you with a couple little things – one time in the middle of the trial, it came to the attention of the judge that there was a juror with a law book opened up on her lap. And she was called to sidebar and she said, yes, I went to take this course, but it canceled or something. I mean, she had a law book on mm-hmm. her. I mean, that's against the rules. And another time we noticed there was a woman during the trial in the jury box knitting. And the judge called it a sidebar, and she said, I can't concentrate and I can't listen if I'm not knitting. And she was allowed to knit throughout the trial. As Johnny Carson would say, wild stuff. Well, thank you, Diane. Uh, We'll be getting back to more, shall we say, important, serious matters, but it was nice to lighten things up a little bit. There you go. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice.
Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed. Dismissed.